Um, if you'd like to turn to your Bible, we're going to have our um, Bible reading now. It's from Acts chapter 1, verse uh, 12 to 26, and you'll find that on page 1092 in the Church Bibles. Matthias chosen to replace Judas. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may take another his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Basabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. How often do you pray? And what do you pray for? Prayer has been described as the lifeblood of the the Christian, and yet um, so often we we let it run low, and we're surprised that our Christian energy and enthusiasm wanes. It's easy, isn't it, for prayer to be relegated down the, the priority list? As we looked at the last Sunday morning, it's so easy to become Martha's constantly fretting about what we have to do, rather than just sitting and spending time with God in study and prayer. 
Now, I'm not here this evening to make you feel guilty about your poor prayer life. I think we all know that uh, our prayer lives could be better. But in this um, short series of three sermons on prayer that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three of the most common areas of prayer and areas in which we often struggle. This evening, we're looking at the issue of guidance. We're not going to be able to do justice to this uh, issue in one sermon, but um, we'll look at a particular instance in the life of the early church when they prayed for guidance, as they asked God to help them decide who they should choose to replace Judas as an apostle. And let's look at the, the principles that we can learn from them as they, as they did that. Next week, we'll be looking at um, prayer for boldness in our, in our witness, which again is an area we, we all struggle with. And finally, prayer for other believers in trouble, whether it's because they are sick or, or struggling with some other difficulty. These sermons are going to be based in Acts because the early church was a great example of, uh, of a church, of a people who were committed, who were passionate about prayer, and we could do well to learn much uh, from them. They didn't always get it right. If we moved on to Acts 6, we could see there how the, the church had to set aside uh, deacons to care for some of the, the practical aspects of church life, recognising that uh, the ministry of the word and prayer had been neglected and they needed to, uh, to prioritise that. But let's have a look at this passage from, from Acts 1. The context here is that uh, Jesus has left the disciples, he's ascended into heaven. And before he, done, he did so, he, he leaves them with two commands and a promise, which are linked. Have a look at verse 4. There's the command of chapter 1. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. What is, what is this gift or promise? Well, I, in verse 5, it says, In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And why is he uh, giving them this gift? Whoops. Um, verse 8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And those are the last words that are reported in Acts that he said to them. After this it says in verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he's left them with this great commission to, to go and uh, be his witnesses or as it says in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He leaves them with a commission to go and make disciples. But he doesn't expect them to do that in their own power. He's going to give them power, and that power will come from the Holy Spirit. Now imagine how they were feeling at this time. They've been on a real roller coaster of, uh, of a ride, emotionally speaking. It wasn't very long before that that they'd witnessed Jesus arrested, crucified, and they thought probably that that was it, that it was all over. The three years that they'd spent with him, all a waste of time. Probably depressed, afraid for their lives, hiding behind closed doors. That was a part of the roller coaster where their, 
They're hanging upside down, just uh, wanting it to, to stop. And then incredibly, Jesus comes back from the dead, just as he said he would. He really is God. And the resurrection has proved it. He's with them for, for 40 days. Imagine what that time must have been like. Pure celebration for 40 days. The roller coasters climbing slowly the right way up. Um, they've got a view over the whole surrounding area. They were disciples of the risen Lord Jesus, the one who had power over death. But now, he's returning to heaven. But this time it's different, isn't it? Of course, they would be sad that he's uh, leaving them. But they've seen his power. Now they can trust that when he says he will come again, he will come again. When he says he will give them the Holy Spirit, they know that this will really happen. They've already experienced something of his power. Do you remember when they were sent out and they were were given power to to cast out demons, to, to heal people? They knew what that was like. And so now as Jesus ascends into heaven, they're getting to the top of that roller coaster. They're about to, to head down that other side. But this time, with more confidence, this time they know what to expect. So what do they do while they're waiting? What do we learn from this passage? Well, what we see is that they join together constantly in prayer. Now you might think, if Jesus has promised he will send the Holy Spirit, they might as well just put their feet up and uh, wait for him to come. Time for a bit of shopping in Jerusalem. Hang out down the uh, local snooker club. Watch a bit of chariot racing. And then when he comes, they can get on with uh, whatever task they've been given. But what does it say here? Verse 12, they return to Jerusalem. Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And we have a list of uh, those who were there. We have the, all the apostles, Peter, John, James and Andrew. Notice they here they're grouped in, in, in three groups. Um, some sort of leadership hierarchy, probably. Peter, John, James and Andrew, the, the leaders of the early church. But then also the, the women are there with him. And Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And what do they do? They all gather together. What do they do? Well, it says they all join together constantly in prayer. Verse 14. There are two aspects here of what they did. First of all, they all joined together. They were united. Literally, they were of one mind, one purpose. This is not a group of believers with all sorts of different agendas. They were united in their common purpose, which was to, to make disciples, to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're wondering, what would they have been praying about constantly during that time? I wonder whether their prayers would have been based around their future mission, about doing God's will. I'm sure, first of all, they would have been full of praise for, for God and all that he'd achieved in just that short period of time. You know, they're, they're probably still shell-shocked that this could have happened. They're still in, in awe of it all. And then again, they would be praising him for his promise that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. But simply because God promises something doesn't mean we don't need to pray for it. 
Remember the, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples? Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So they would be praying that things would happen as God wants them to happen and he has the, as he has ordained that they will happen. They would pray that uh, Jesus would return soon as he has promised that he would do. But then, of course, they would recognise their, their human weakness. They've been promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've been told to wait, but we all know how hard it is to wait for what we've been promised. And patience is one of the hardest virtues. And, and so they would have prayed that they would have patience, that they wouldn't give up believing that the Spirit would come. And as they anticipated him coming, they would have prayed about what they would do when the Spirit did come. They would have prayed for all those Jews who had rejected Jesus, caused him to be, to be killed, that the Spirit would cause them to repent and see the error of their ways. They would have prayed, surely, that the Holy Spirit would, would guide them as to where to start with this, this huge mission that they've been given. How they would, would organise themselves. They would have prayed that as they faced opposition that they would have the, the courage to resist and stand firm. But we'll come on to those issues next time. They were united in their purpose for prayer and they were united in their passion to pray. Which brings us on to the next point because the other aspect is that they prayed constantly. The author of the book of, uh, of Acts is, uh, is Luke who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if you turn back to the end of Luke's Gospel on page 1062, Luke uh, chapter 24. Here it says, right at the end of chapter 4, after Jesus left them, was taken up into heaven, it says, then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And so we have this picture here of them staying continually at the temple, praising God, and meeting also in homes to pray constantly. Their lives are immersed in praise and prayer. And this is even before they start to proclaim the gospel. It's quite a challenge, isn't it, when we think particularly of our, uh, our token efforts at uh, prayer. It might be, not be so difficult to pray on our own constantly during the day. Wherever we are, you know, we often need Jesus' help to, to resist temptation as it crops up, to pray for strength, to pray for the words to say in different situations. But often we find it harder to meet together to pray, to pray at all, let alone pray constantly. And you may say, well, it was a particular time, you know, they were waiting for the Spirit. What else could they do other than pray? And that may be, be true to a certain extent, but I think we've probably lost something of that community of believers coming together to pray. And we need to think, how can we recapture that urgency, that, that faithfulness in our church prayer life? Was it saying our verse for the year? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. I wonder if this year as a church we have become more Faithful in prayer. Let's come on to the second point, which is that they sought help from...
from, uh, from God's word. In this context, they, they identified an issue that they needed to resolve. Uh, and that was to replace Judas as one of the twelve apostles. And so Peter stands up at um, the first church members meeting, a group of 120 believers, and starts as we do when we open a church meeting by speaking from God's word. He first explains what uh, happened with Judas as being according to, to God's plan, that the scriptures had to be fulfilled, but also that it was a wicked act for which Judas bore his own responsibility. And then we have that uh, gory little uh, aside in brackets about what happened to, to Judas, which we won't dwell on too much for the um, faint-hearted. And then Peter takes two verses from the Psalms and applies them to their current situation. And these Psalms are like many Psalms in that uh, they reflect the, the despair of life in, in the sinful world in which we, we live. They point to the hope that is to be found when we wait on the Lord, when we trust in him. The hope coming from the one who will right the wrong done to the righteous. That one being the Messiah, Jesus Christ. First quotation is from Psalm 69, which says, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And the second from Psalm 109, which says, May another take his place of leadership. Now, we do need to be a little bit careful here, just because Peter used use these two scriptural references. doesn't mean we can simply pull out single verses from scripture and use them to prove our point. In this case, the Spirit has obviously inspired Peter to turn to these verses in order to demonstrate that they need to find a new replacement apostle. But how do they know what to, to look for in an apostle? These days when we choose elders or deacons, we have the qualifications set out for us in Scripture. But what was needed for an apostle? We'll have a look at verse 21. It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. In other words, someone who's witnessed all the miracles, who's received the, the full teaching. Why is that important? Well, what is the role of an apostle? Have a look at what it carries on to say. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. A witness of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection is crucial to the proclaiming of the gospel message. The resurrection is what proves all that Jesus said and did was true. If Jesus hadn't come back from the dead, he would be, as C.S. Lewis said, either a liar or a lunatic. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if, Jesus, if Christ didn't come back to life, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins and are to be pitied above all people. When the apostles go out and proclaim Christ... They speak of his resurrection. Just turn uh, briefly over to um, chapter 4, verse uh, 33, and see what happened to the apostles when the Spirit came upon them. What do they do? It says there, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. They testified to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Let's turn over to to Acts chapter 13, verse 26. And this is Paul now preaching in Antioch. He's uh, reminded the, the Jews of their history. And then look what he says in verse 26, chapter 13, verse 26. He says, Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. They knew how important it was for an apostle to be a witness of the resurrection. And so they proposed two men who met this criteria. And then what do they do? They've they've identified two men who meet this criteria. And then they pray that they would know the mind and the will of God. What exactly is it they prayed for? Have a look at verse 24, back in chapter 1 now. It says, Lord... You know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Well, first of all, they pray for divine insight. They pray for the mind of God. It was that that was uniting them when they came together to pray, the the mind of God. They were praying with one mind. The Curry Night on Tuesday night, Phil Chatter, the the speaker, spoke about um, life on the inside of a prison. Not particularly an attractive place to be, not a great deal of of good that goes on there. But he pointed to the words of Jesus, who said that all the evil that men do comes from the inside, from within men's hearts. That includes all of us there at the Curry Night on Tuesday night. Yes, we might be able to put on an air of respectability. We might be able to kid other people. But we can't kid God. He knows what we are like on the inside. He knows what our hearts are like. And as as Phil said, Christians are those who accept that it doesn't look good on their inside. Who accept that they need God's help to change. As opposed to those who kid themselves and others that they actually are not that bad. People's actions often display what they're like on the inside, but we don't know people's thoughts. We, as humans, can make certain judgments about the suitability of someone to to be given a role of responsibility, but we need God's help and insight. It's not just about pointing leaders, it's about many areas of church life, that we need divine insight because of our spiritual blindness. We want the mind of Christ. And so we pray out, Lord, help us to see what you see. Help us to see what we are doing wrong as a church, where our faults are, where we are being disobedient to you. Help us to see how we can be serving you more faithfully. 
And the interesting thing about guidance is that most of what we need to know is actually in God's word already. But we may not know where to look. And, and we may not know which passages to, to turn to, which are helpful, and how we apply them to our situation, which is why we, we pray for the Spirit's help. Much of what God wants us to do is simple obedience to him. It's a simple trust in him at all times. It's serving him faithfully at all times. In short, it is putting him first. And I think the reason that we sometimes struggle with guidance is that we we often don't put him first, do we? In the passage, the Apostles' request of God was, show us which of these two you have chosen. Who is the person you want? Now, this is quite a, a specific case here. We're talking about the 12 Apostles, but... The principle is the same, accepting our limitations and asking for God to show us what is most important for him in a certain decision. You might recall the story in the Old Testament when Samuel went to the house of uh, Jesse and he brought out seven of his uh, sons and uh, made them pass before Samuel uh, as uh, he was there to, to find the one the Lord had chosen to be the next king of Israel. And each time he said no. The Lord has not chosen this one. And eventually, the youngest was brought out, and God said, he is the one. As God said to Samuel afterwards, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. To pray for God's guidance is to ask for his mind and his will. When we think of our daily... um, personal decisions about how we spend our time, how we spend our our money. Are we asking God for for help in prioritising them? Or in pursuing what we think is good, are we neglecting what is actually better? When we think of the big decisions that we have to make in life, like a new job, it's often a big decision for many people. What are the criteria that that we use? We think of the criteria the world would use. It would be, what is the status I would get from this job? What is the the power that goes with it? What is the sense of fulfilment that I will will find in this job? What is the remuneration? What are the prospects? Prospects by which is meant the prospects for greater status and power and fulfilment and remuneration. But none of those things is mentioned in the Bible as a reason for, for working. The reason we work is because God called us to work. For the majority of the world's population have no choice about the work that they are able to do. And if your work is well paid, if it is fulfilling, then praise God for that. But remember what is more important to God. Not the job you choose, but the way in which you perform that work. Are you working with enthusiasm, with honesty, with fairness? Are you serving the Lord and glorifying him in in all you do? Are you being generous and loving towards your your colleagues that you you work with? Are you being fair in your dealings with clients or patients? In short, are you reflecting God's character and your relationship with him? The key to making sure we are doing that, the key to all our decision-making, both as individuals and as a church, is where we started, which is by ensuring that our lives are immersed in prayer. 
as Jesus came to the point where he had to make the hardest choice of his life. Where he had to allow himself to be arrested and flogged and crucified and take the sin of the world upon him. Experience the abandonment of the Father for our sakes. He spent the night in prayer. Whilst the disciples slept, he prayed. And in the course of that prayer, he said, Not my will, but yours be done. We're going to um, remember that sacrifice now, but as we do, let us think of all the decisions we need to make and let us commit them to him and say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, we confess that uh, we are those with limited understanding and wisdom And in all the things that we do in our lives, we want to know your mind and your will. We want to see with your eyes. We thank you for your words in which we can find the way we should be living our lives. And we do pray that your spirit would direct us to those parts of your word that we need to read, that we need to understand. We need to apply to our lives. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be immersed in prayer. That we'd be constantly communicating with you, knowing what you want us to do. And as a church, we again would be immersed in prayer, praying together with one mind, your mind. Lord, help us to pray constantly. Help us to be always speaking to you and listening to you, that we do what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.